Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Mystical Matchmaker Podcast. I'm Marla Martinson, a crystal-loving, tarot-slinging, matchmaker, author, and energy healer. I'm here to inspire you to heal the past, live in the moment, and put some magic and fun in finding your soulmate. This is a place where we talk about all things love, light, how to make your dreams come true, and awaken to your authentic self by consciously creating your reality. Hey everyone, welcome, welcome. Well, welcome to October, my favorite month, but you know what? Today is October 11th and every year we brace ourselves for those California fires. And I woke up this morning to my backyard just so strong with the fire smell and everybody calling each other to see if we're okay. Uh, luckily, where I live in Lake Balboa, we don't get the fires coming right here, but they get, you know, about 12 miles from us. So I'm so happy to be doing a fun podcast to take my mind off of that. But it's a beautiful sunny day, and uh, I have a really special guest for you today. As you know, I love memoir. Memoir is my favorite genre. I've written three memoirs myself, and I always get excited um, when I find a new memoir to to uh, read. And my guest today <clears throat> has written three memoirs as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, they're, they're, they're uh, books that follow each other, so it's a trilogy. And I'm just going to tell you about my guest, and we're going to get right into her adventure because it's so inspiring for all women. Born in Tanzania, East Africa, Nambu, she prefers to be known by her Sukuma name, sustained her spirit through dance and kept alive her dream of further education in the United States. Here she in the U.S., she created a popular workout based on African dance called Aerobics with Soul. And in Africa's Child, the first book of the Dancing Soul trilogy, Nambu tells her story from birth to her departure from Africa. And then she goes on to, to follow her life. Um, it's just absolutely fascinating. So I'm going to bring her on right now. Hello, Nambu. How are you? Hello, Marla. I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for being with me. So, so tell us about this uh, trilogy and what what inspired you to share this because it's quite an undertaking. These these books. I mean, it's just you know I know what it takes to write one, and and I'm so impressed that you got your beautiful story down. Um, so tell us a little bit about it and how, you know, you, you started off in an orphanage and just give us the, the a little bit of the background there um, oh. of your childhood. All right. Thank you. Uh, it was hard, as you say, to write my story. It took me 25 wow. years to get it done from the time I started oh. because... Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was, I was very insecure about writing. English was not my language. I was so afraid I would come across as a second grader or something, you know, but the story wanted to be written. It needed to be written. And I felt that I was chosen. I was chosen to tell this story. And uh, I end up telling my own personal story, but it also reflects on the stories of the other orphans who are in the same orphanage as me. 
So the the book, of course, the premise of the whole book of my story is that in Tanzania those days, of course, 75 years ago when I was born, uh, mixed-race children were not very well accepted in the African society. And they, of course, were also not even acknowledged in the uh, white society or the white fathers who, for the most part, were the ones who fathered us. So very often we were hidden, and some of us would live and die without ever seeing the sun or anything. And I've always been very grateful that I was not one of those people who just lived in darkness. Uh, about uh, 1932, uh, a, a Catholic order of nuns called the Precious Blood Sisters from Germany came to Africa, and they opened up an orphanage for mixed-race pe- children. So word got around the country that there was a place for us now, and we came from out of the woodworks, every age, every size, from, let's say, 3 to 7, 9, 13, 20, 25. Everybody descended on this orphanage, which was called Kipungilo, and the nuns, the German nuns were going to take care of us. I was brought there when I was only three days old. So my whole life in in Africa, in, in, overall, was uh, the, uh, the orphanage was my home. Um, then none, and tell us, uh, to, to, wait, sorry to interrupt, but how did you? What happened? Was your mother uh, having an affair with a, a white man, or was she raped, or what? What was the story? Why were you? You know, yeah, do you want me to tell you yeah. the whole story? You know, it, it's really quite a mystery because at the, at the time, until I left Africa when I was 19, I didn't know any yeah. of that. So I couldn't, oh. you know, I tell you, but that is covered in book two and in book uh-huh. three. But when I was yeah. in the orphanage, I was, I was told I had no parents. I, I was an, a true orphan. But uh, it, it turns out, too, many of the kids in the orphanage were not all true orphans. Some orphans, some of them had, had parents who loved each other. You know, they were mixed race and they were married, but their children were equally not accepted in the society. So they brought their children there. Those have oh. children. We were the haves and the have-nots. The children went to, for holidays, the ones that had parents, and those of us who didn't just stay there. So uh, uh-huh. the, my story really gets kind of interesting, but I would have to be jumping to answer your question. I can answer it if you want for me to tell you how I went there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to follow the exact timeline, and we just, it's a half-hour show, so we'll just get into some of the, you know, juicy parts, and then people can get your book and and (laughs) Okay, the juicy parts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll just go ahead then and and just kind of you know t- and tell the story in a yeah, nutshell. Yeah, because Nambu, I can I cannot imagine having a child that you love and because society does not accept them that you have to go and drop them at an orphanage. I mean, this is just blowing my mind here. Yes, it uh, and that's really kind of how it was. So I was at the orphanage and for all those years, and uh, yeah. as we continue. So many things happened. I went away to an African school, and I was lucky to be one of the uh, few chosen people to go to an, an all-African, meaning they were not mixed, secondary school, which was about um, 200 miles away, and it was run by American Marinol sisters this time, also Catholic. Mm-hmm. While I was okay. there in the, high, at the secondary school, there was a lay teacher who was from Minnesota, and she came to just volunteer one year of her life to teach there, and she was my oral English teacher. So she, mm-hmm. this, you know, after hearing my story, 
decided to adopt me and bring me to America. She was only 23, and I was 19. Mm-hmm. And she wow. just took this step and brought me yeah. to America, and she was also an only child. So I came to America, and uh, I've, I always say whoever says one person doesn't make a difference really has, <laughs> we say he hasn't slept under the mosquito net with one mosquito. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so Kathy is her name, Catherine uh, Marmer. She brought me over here, and uh, I've always said I'm very, very grateful that she saw me with her heart and not with her mind because yeah. she just saw a need, and she stepped up to it. She didn't wait until everything was fine. She brought me to America. I got a scholarship. I went to a Catholic college, College of St. Catherine in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I graduated. I got married to uh, a man from Norway. I had children. When my first child was six, my birth mother showed up on the scene. And that whole chapter is very amazing because she turns out to be a white American whom I had no idea. I was always praying to find my African mother because almost everybody in the orphanage had African mothers or at least knew of people who said they knew their mothers were from Africa. Anyway, so she, uh, you know, she came to the scene and uh, she told me only a very few things about myself, uh, but she introduced me to my half-brother who was raised in Africa also. He went there with his parents when they were two, and uh, it's a, again a very long story, but our mother passed away, and after she passed away, my brother and I, who was eight years older than me, we went to Tanzania to look for my father because my mother told me absolutely nothing. She would not talk about him, and I was really dying to know about my African side because in my heart and soul I'm African. And mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to find that out. So, like, book three begins with us making this journey to Tanzania, we don't know anybody, a country of I don't know how many millions of people, we don't know who we're looking for. It had been like 40 years since my brother had lived there, and I, and so I was like 48. And we kind of combed up uh, Tanzania, uh, you know, from, from the East Coast to the West, up and down, just trying to trace the places where my brother's fam- parents lived uh, to look for my father. Yeah. So it, that that all goes in book three, and as it turns out, it's just a whole series of coincidences that happen uh, that in the end I do find him. And his name uh-huh. is Nambu, and that's why when I met him, I took my children to go and meet him at two, and he really wanted his name to live in America. That's what he said. So uh, that's why even though my name now is Maria Nambu, there's a whole mm-hmm. saga in my book about all the different names I took as a child because I did not know my last name. So finally at age 48, mm-hmm. I finally know you know, who I am. And so I decided to take Maria Nambu, and my kids also uh, have added Nambu to their, to their names. That's uh-huh. kind of in a nutshell is my story. <laughs> Oh my God! I mean, it's 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 phenomenal. And so, um, also there uh, in the questions that I was sent, there's a lot of different subjects here to bring up. And and um, uh, it says you were you had some abuse, experienced some abuse from some of the nuns and priests uh, in that yes. should have been caring for you. Yeah. Well, there was um, lots of mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, Talk about that a little. Okay. 
there was lots of abuse in uh, in the orphanage. Actually, Book One is is uh, I I write about some of it. Most of it was from the the big girls. Like I told you, you know, we were brought there in different of different ages, and so the bigger girls took care of the little ones, and the bigger girls used to beat us and abuse us all the time. And the nuns also used, not all of them, but some of them used to beat us, you know, as a disciplinary uh, method. We, we we were beaten with sticks, with blows, with you have oh. you, when we were growing up. And uh, so we were all, we were all always scared. And then again, yeah. as I continue, I go to school, I was also abused by a couple of priests. So that that's kind of what, you know, that the abuse that I talk about, it was, it was daily. Oh my gosh. And how did that affect your life going forward? Would you say, I mean, were you, do you feel that you've been able to um, clear that emotionally or, or. Yeah. I think one of the what I had going for me is that I was a I was an intelligent and precocious child. So even as a child, you know, at, I I remember stuff from age three, but in the book I say age two because I don't think people will believe me. So uh, <laughs> I made up my mind because it, when I looked around me, it looked like like there were, I had no body. You know, I really believed that nobody loved me, and I just I said to myself. You know, I could live and I could, you know, it wouldn't make a difference to anybody whether I lived or whether I died. But then I realized it would make a difference to me. So I I decided to love me. I decided I had to be the one who loved me. And that decision, that decision absolutely was the one important decision that brought me from there to here. That is that is so important because we always talk about self-love and, and women who haven't gone through anything uh, near what you went through have problems loving yourself. So what, what's a tip that what is one thing that you did or something you did to love yourself? And I mean, you can just say it, but was there anything you really had to do or was da- did dance help you with that self-love? Um, yes. What, what was it that, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what I did is I created another me who was kind of like my twin. She was not my imaginary friend. She, we never played. Okay. I always talked to this particular person who was actually me. I was looking at me, and I was I was I called her Pet Mary, and she's very important <laughs> in all my books because when I was little I was fat and my name was Mary. And uh, so they called me Fat Mary. The nuns called me Fat Mary, and I absolutely hated that name. So when I I decided to love myself, I had to decide how I was going to do it. So I took that horrible, that name that I really hated, and turned it around, and I made her my friend. So Fat Mary became my friend, and I spent hours analyzing my life talking with her and she was my counselor and my consoler she's she was always with me she's still with me today because she is me i see people we have we all have our own fat marys you know uh when there's a problem i always went to talk to fat mary who was i looked within me for the answers because they were not out there i couldn't depend on anyone so I depended on me. And then I also found out that I really loved to dance. So I used to sneak in the villages around there and dance with the Africans, and we were forbidden to dance the pagan way, so to speak, the African dance. If we wanted to dance, we were supposed to do the German waltz. So <laughs> I, I, the dance really helped me express myself. And I also felt that I would be completely 
alone in, in, at the orphanage and would be doomed to live there forever if I didn't have an education. So I, yeah. I studied hard and I pursued an education. So between believing in education to better myself so I can leave the orphanage and then expressing how I feel, the freedom I felt when I was doing African dancing, you know, there's no right way, there's no wrong way to dance. There was only dance yeah. that completely... I, it cleansed me and it made me love myself even more. And then my fat Mary, I, those tools really helped me believe in me. And I felt very strong that if I loved me, I couldn't lose. Right. Absolutely. I love that. You know, when I was a little girl, I had very, very bright red hair and freckles. And there wasn't, there was maybe one other girl in my school that had red hair because redheads are only like 2% of the world population. So, so we would get, I'd get made fun of and called names and all of that. But uh, Pippi Longstocking was, was a, a character that was very popular back then. And I would read the books about Pippi, who was a redhead, and she was a Swedish girl. And she was strong. She could lift up her horse right over her head. And she lived all alone because her parents, I don't know, they, instead of being an orphanage. So I used, Pippi as my friend <laughs> that was like me so it's interesting um, I love that finding uh, either a part of yourself or or a character to kind of relate to and um, be your friend and uh, that is really interesting <laughs> um, yes I think that uh, that yeah. really helped and then the reason I'm finding out it was not only something that helped me then is that is that I don't know if I, because I developed that habit to looking within me for for solutions. Yeah. Uh, right. I I continue to go there today because you know life continues and there's lots of problems and issues that come up all the time. I just find the first place I go is within myself to analyze and to see what can I do about it. What's my role in this? How can I get out of it? Is it good? I'm so accustomed to dealing with with things myself and solving my problems. Of course, we cannot, when others are involved in many ways, we cannot solve. But when it's involving me and, and how I feel about, about me, uh, I always go inside because my biggest job I, I decided as a child was to love myself unconditionally. Right. And then when you came to America, was there... Um uh, in some racism there, did you have to deal with that, or some, you know, this, yes, was it just I, I, what was, was that like compared I, to Africa? Yeah, well, the different the racism is a little bit, a little bit different. You know, when I came to America, one of the hardest things I had to do was uh, there's a chapter in book two which is called becoming black. I had to learn to become an African-American, to be a black American, because I, even though I always considered myself African, I never considered myself black per se. But when I was in college, you know, it was at the height of the civil rights movement. And while I, movement, while I was there, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Was, was assassinated. And there was so much turmoil and unrest in the whole country. And in our school discussions, I felt I was, I was one of like two uh, black people in the whole school, I felt like people looked to me to explain things and to understand things, even though I was still learning English. I did not know, you know, the American culture, but I had to learn to to function within a society that had an image of who I was because of my skin color. I had no yeah. choice in a way. I, th- I knew who I was, but uh, if I was to function here, I had to, to become an African-American so that I, I could 
I, I could know how to really function. Like they say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And I right. realized for me, late to my, to, to my classmates, I had to kind of meet them where they were, with what and how they thought of me. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, my gosh. That, what a task. <laughs> yeah, there were there were many, you know, issues and, and there are many examples in my book of, of when how that really hit me that this is how I was being perceived, that I was a more or less a representative of the black Americans, even though I was as new as and I didn't understand the culture. It didn't it didn't matter. So that that all to me it, it just focused on the problem of racism in America being mostly skin color. When I found in Tanzania it can be skin skin color or in other African countries, uh but it was mostly a class, you know, kind of mm. or discrimination okay. because class. racism of course has something to do with race. But uh, I found for us it was mostly class, you know, how rich you are, how poor you are, how educated you were. But I found that in America yeah. the class for the most part didn't matter. You'll find very accomplished, you know, uh, people, prof- you know, professionals in every field in America who are black. But they're being discriminated just as much as me who am nothing, you know, who have not, right. have not accomplished half of what they have. So it, it is it is very distinct in that way because in America it seems to be primarily on the color of your skin and of course the you know the the class and social status also enters at some point but it is almost blindly just the color of your skin. Right. Yeah. Because here, if somebody is well spoken and you know they can we can present ourselves any way and to be accepted they're not going to dig into your past or family so so uh that part is good but that uh, based on skin color it's 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 terrible so have what uh do you have any insights about the uneasy state of race relations now in in america how how do you think it's changed since then it yeah. seems like it's uh, still um and it you know not resolving yes. very well. Well, uh, it's funny, you know, you should ask that question because I, in in a way, I'm just being very conflicted because I, I'm being thrown way back in the 60s. It seems like with what is happening now here in America, I it's like deja vu. I have been there before. I've lived through mm. this before. I thought we've come a long way, but considering what is happening now, I'm having those same feelings that I had when I first yeah. came here, and I was so lost and confused. It's almost like you know the pendulum has swung back, and we're trying again to to you know to get to the other side. Right, and it's interesting now with the politics, with the um, Democrats and Republicans so divided. It's almost like. Uh, a, a racism thing again. You know what I mean? It's like it's a different exactly. situation, it is. but it's the yeah. It's like I don't know. Humans always find a way to separate ourselves and into groups that are against each other. They'll find any way. It's it's really yeah. um, sad. The energy around it is just very devastating. Um, it it really is, what, and and yeah. uh, I don't know. You know what to say because we. You know, my dream in Africa was to come to America. And I, I, you know, and I achieved so much of my dream. But, uh, you know, when you come to America, you know, I was just so, so in many ways, 
I was very surprised to to see the, the, the culture and the people who seemed to have everything, materially at least, and who seemed to be doing so well, and we emulated them, and we wanted to come to America. We wanted to be like the culture, the people over here, you know. But when I came here and I lived for a while and I started seeing all these racial and other conflicts that, that, that happened, one of the things that really stood out for me is that uh, many of the, the, the Americans who were well-to-do materially and had families and had beautiful homes and all, they, they didn't have themselves. They were, they were somehow deep down unhappy. I'm not saying all, yeah. but quite a few. I, w- I would think after they had achieved everything that they had achieved and become and how life was so much easier, you know, uh, things would be easier for them. But I found the basic right. very often when people are dissatisfied with their lives is, is they just don't know or love or appreciate themselves. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a lot of uh, around our culture goes for as much money as you can make, a bigger house, this car, and um, and and people say when they visit some other countries where people don't have all of those things, but they see how happy they are just uh, being yeah. together and enjoying a good meal, and yeah, it's stripping down to the basics um, of what's really important, and that's great. And so you, we don't have much time left, but just speak a little bit about your dance, uh, what you created that. Uh, aerobics with soul and do you still do you teach it or what what do you do with that yes yeah um aerobics with soul uh, is a fitness program that's based on african tribal dancing as i told you i really love to dance and when i came to america i just wanted to share something i had received so much from americans in every every area in my life, you know, from education, from hospitality, from just I received kindness and concern. I really wanted to to see what, what do I have that they might, yeah. maybe might have or that I can give back, you know, in, in gratitude for everything that has been done for me. So I felt, you know, I had the joy and the beauty and the grace of, of African dance, and I wanted to mm-hmm. share that. So I decided one way to do it was uh, through fitness because at that time in the 80s when I was creating this, there was this fitness craze, this dance fitness craze, the aerobics classes and all. So I took the dances that I learned as a child and I modified them, breaking them down into beginning, intermediate, intermediate, and advanced level so that almost all Americans could do it. I just wanted to share the joy and the purity and the immediateness and spontaneity and the magic of African dance, because, we, like I said, we, we just dance for the most part. We, we don't care. It's not the right way to dance. It's not the wrong way to dance. It was a, it's an expression. It's a self-celebrating expression. And I wanted to share that element of the African dance culture with the Americans, because I figured if I give them that, maybe I can give them a little bit of themselves. Uh, how beautiful! I know. Whenever I see uh, Africans dance, the African dancers, everybody's just smiling. It's like the highest form of joy. It's so happy. You just want to do it. You know, it's it is. It's fantastic. Oh my gosh! I yeah, and I teach, and I've trained oh, instructors, and I still teach. And 
I, I go all over, and, and that is exactly what I see. When I look at my class, I just see this pure joy that people didn't even know they had, but it is allowed in the class to yeah. just be you and express how you, how you feel. Of course, I lead them in the movements and all, but I do really mm-hmm. encourage everyone to be themselves as they do the, uh, the movements. Never, they won't look like me, like I won't look like them. They'll look like themselves and accept it and do your best and be free Send your mind on vacation and just let your body move. Oh, my gosh. Nambu, this has been such a delight. Um, The show went by so fast, but thank you so much for sharing. You guys, um, check out her website. It is linked up back at Blog Talk Radio, but it's mariannambu.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-H-A-M-B-U. And you've got to get her books and check her out. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm sending you Thank much you love. So much. Thank you. This was really a privilege. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.